What chapter are we in? We're, we're at the beginning <laughs> of Job. And there are a few things maybe we should say before we uh, begin uh, this. Um, I'll mention a couple of passages outside of Job that refer to Job. Uh, Ezekiel 14 has an interesting passage saying that the nation of Judah was so wicked that even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves. So Ezekiel 14 uses Noah, Daniel, and Job as examples of especially righteous men that even with them being there, it's so wicked they could only deliver themselves. Uh, there's some other comparisons uh, of those things, but, but that, that's a passage that really uh, speaks highly of Job to put him in the same category with Noah and Daniel. And then you may remember the New Testament passage in James chapter 5 that looks at the prophets and Job as examples of those who endured and in Job's case were blessed after they endured. So, uh, so those are a couple of other passages that refer to Job that might be good to think of to start out with. Job, uh, James 5.11. Um, the whole book of Job is an interesting, uh, has interesting structure to it. It opens with a prologue, uh, like a historical narrative prologue in chapters 1 and 2. It closes with a historical narrative epilogue in chapter 42, verses 7 to 17. The next thing you have is the lament, where Job laments his birth in chapter 3. And the book, the second to last thing in the book is Job's closing, like, uh, statement of confession in chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. In the middle, between those things, there are three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends, although in the third cycle, one of the friends does not speak. Then there's a one-chapter interlude on wisdom, and then there's a three-cycle monologue. Job speaks, Elihu speaks, and God speaks. So if you put that together, you've got prologue, lament, three cycles of dialogue, interlude on wisdom, three cycles of monologue, the closing confession, and the epilogue. I think that structure is probably intentional. And I think that does help you kind of organize Job in your mind. Uh, so... Um, and in these first two chapters, which is the prologue, you have uh, alternation between the setting on earth and in heaven, on earth, in heaven, and back to the earth. So that's where we're at, Job chapter 1. Would somebody like to read verses 1 to 5? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them 
rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. Well, this is an interesting way to begin the book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, we're not real sure where the land of Uz was, and we're really not told anything else to try to locate him, even chronologically. You know, no genealogy is given for Job, no time period is given for Job, and I think that may be intentional. Job is addressing universal, timeless issues. It doesn't really matter when Job lived. Oh, it doesn't really matter what family he belonged to. He can really represent any person at any time. Um, so so it, that's, that's the kind of the vague general statement we have. We will perhaps a couple of times in the book say something uh, to try to help us get maybe a little better idea of when he lived. But, but there's just not a lot of information given in the book about that. Um, the thing that it does emphasize in verse 1 about Job is what? He's righteous. He is righteous. The whole book is built around that fact. The plot depends on Job being a righteous man. How righteous was he? Very. Yeah. Is there a level? Yeah. Well, I mean, when it says he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil, that's about as good a statement as you'll find in the Bible on somebody being a good, righteous man. I mean, that that's a really key element in the book. Don't forget how righteous Job is. Now, he's not only righteous, what else can you say about him in these first five verses? He's wealthy. He's wealthy. Um, and, and, and prosperous in every sense. His family, what does he have? Ten kids. Ten kids, seven sons and three daughters. Does that tell you anything? He has the perfect number of sons and the perfect number of daughters. Perfect number of sons, perfect number of children. Seven sons, ten kids. What about the seven to three ratio? Know anything else in the seven to three ratio? Well, did you read verse three? Seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels. <laughs> Think about Solomon. What did he have? Seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines. There, there's a good bit of association with the seven to three ratio, and certainly the idea that he had seven sons and ten children overall. I think is a symbol of how fully blessed he was. In 1 Samuel 1 and verse 8, Elkanah said to Hannah, Why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Ten sons would be like kind of the perfect number. And in 1 Samuel 2, 5, those who were full hire them out, uh, themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. So seven and ten would be typical numbers for a full set of children. So Job is righteous. He's got the almost the ideal family. 
Uh, and he's prosperous. In verse 3, look at all that he had. He had a lot. Um, so Job is kind of the poster child for a righteous man that God blesses. You know, this is great. This is the way life ought to be. You do the right thing, God blesses you. We all live happily ever after. This is very much in line with what we think ought to be. What should happen when you're righteous? Good things. The good things. So there you have it. He just proves the case that if you just do good, everything will go great for you. At least that's what it looks like up to this point in the book. Um, and he, he's got a united family. On everybody's, it looks like on each of the son's birthday, they hold a feast and they invite all the other kids. And, you know, they just have a, a fun time, um, you know, because they're united. And what does Job do on these days of feasting? He offers a sacrifice on their behalf. Because? He thinks they might have unintentionally sinned. Yeah, he is so concerned with his children and so concerned with the will of God, he wonders if they could have even maybe thought something, you know, if they could have cursed God in their hearts. So he offers sacrifice for them just in case. I mean, that's just how devoted to the Lord Job is. And he's, he's just the kind of man that he, he crosses all his T's and dots all his I's when it comes to serving God. Um, just an exemplary but righteous man. All right, comments and questions on that? It's interesting, sometimes we live to where how much can we get away with, but he says, how much can I do for God? And that's the opposite of what we do today. Great point. Yeah. I thought all the bad people went to the East. <laughs> well, uh, the wise men came from the East. Uh, in Genesis. In Genesis, right? they do seem to go to the East, but, uh, but I don't know that that means later on in the Bible that being from the East is always a bad thing. Is he really supposed to do what he did in verse 5? Uh, why not? What's bad about offering sacrifices and praying for God to be merciful to your children? It looks like he's offering sacrifices on their behalf like something the priests would do. No, I mean, I think he's, uh, you know, I think he's offering sacrifices and just praying to God to bless his sons. And how do you know that he lived in a Yeah, as far as we know, he's not an Israelite. If he even lived after the Israelites were Israelites, maybe he was prior to that. It's interesting that in verse, verse 5, it's early in the morning. Yeah. rose up, so you've got that whole Abraham rose up early in the morning and he took Isaac and the other places. Shows you his commitment to make sure he gets this done. All right, other comments? 6 to 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered, The Lord said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house, and all that he has on every side? 
thus blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Well, there's this time when the sons of God are coming before God. And Satan's in that group. And, well, <laughs> this is just really uh, an interesting interchange between God and Satan. God says to Satan, from where do you come? Well, Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. You know, Satan pretty much has universal sway on the earth. You know, he's been, he's been strutting around on his, his home turf. You know, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So what's God doing right there? Bragging about Job. That's exactly right. He says, here is a specimen of righteousness. You know, this is just a real dishonor to Satan. It's one that got away. <laughs> you know, it's one he can't claim. And, and, and God's the one who brings him up and sort of trots him out as the epitome of a righteous man who has not given in to Satan. Um, you know, Satan had control over a lot of people, but not Job. And the Lord is pleased to present him to Satan as one that he had not been able to warp. Comments? just seems kind of odd to me. Why? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's kind of like he's, God is drawing <coughs> Satan's attention to Job. And I'm thinking that, you know, if, if God wants to protect Job, it's not what you do. You don't, you don't point out to the sniper on the building, hey, look, here, here's, my, here's my favorite kid. Here's, see the, you know, the target on him. Ooh, who said God wanted to protect Job from going through this? Satan could not do one thing to Job without God's permission. So I'm not so sure that we ought to assume God is not, you know, um, I think God sees value in, in this whole experiment. I don't think God was caught off guard by how Satan challenges him. So I really think this, I really think all that happens in Job that God has his hand in very much. And, 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 and really I think a lot of the point of the book is really made clear in this interchange. This is a key segment of the book because what's Satan's perspective on Job's righteousness? just based on the blessings he received. Yes. You know, it's no big surprise that Job serves you. You know, be just serving you for the pay. I mean, who wouldn't serve God if you get all this out of it? You know, um, so it's, it's like God has kind of rigged the rules. You know, and, and all this, you know, piety of Job is just really well-calculated selfishness. I mean, you know, he's just paying his meal ticket. 
and whatever else he's getting out of this. So, so Satan's like, you know, I mean, okay, yeah, he's serving you, but I mean, you're having to bribe him to get it. <laughs> Not really serving you because he, he just wants to serve you. You know, do, do you like buying a friend? <laughs> I mean, how, how would that feel to you? You can get somebody to be your friend if you take him out to eat often enough, if you, you know, give him stuff enough and all that. And you kind of sense that. You kind of sense they'll not be your friend if you don't do all this stuff for them. So you do all that stuff and they're your friend. How does that feel? Yeah, it's kind of empty. I mean, I don't know, having to buy them doesn't make it quite the same, you know. And that really raises the question, do men serve God for who he is or do they serve God for what he does for them? And that really hits at the heart of our relationship with God. When we worship God, is worship essentially selfish? Is there really, you know, righteousness and goodness that is unselfish, that's really God-centered? You know, is Job, and for that matter, are you, is anyone, you know, you know doing good for God, or is it always just for what we can get out of it? And maybe back up and ask this question, is God good and great enough to worship and serve him for his own sake, even if there were no profit to the worshiper? You know, is, 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 is this just a matter that, well, as long as the vending machine keeps he's bidding out the stuff, I'll put the coins in. Or is there something about God that's worth our dedicating our life to, regardless of what we were to get out of it? In Satan's warped mind, there is no pure goodness. There's no service without pay. He sees no love in the world that's not self-love. And I think God, in how he responds, implicitly indicates that if Job's motives were purely selfish, then the service wouldn't count, or it wouldn't count nearly as much. So I really do think this raises an important question. I think a lot of the book of Job, there's a lot of value in the book. There's a lot of things to think about. But I think probably the biggest lesson in the book is, is to just really dwell on the question, are there people who serve God because he's God even when they get nothing out of that and they don't know that they will? So, what does God agree to? Test. test. What's the test going to be? I mean, not specifically, but what does he tell Satan he can do? You can take his stuff. You know, just don't hurt him. But everything he's got, it's yours. Do what you want to with it. You know, you can take it back. All the blessings. Just don't touch his person. Now, that shows me Satan's under God's control. Satan could not have done a thing to Job without God permitting it. So we're going to set up this test. We're going to take it all away and then see if Job really loves God so much. Now, 
We know this is a test. Does Joe? What if he had? It no. Be a fair test. It really wouldn't be a test, would it? You know, I mean, part of the genius of this test is Job has no clue. So it's putting him in a situation where he really believes that his serving God isn't getting him anything. In fact, it's gotten him a whole bunch of suffering. Will he still serve God? So I think this, you know, often introductions are important, but I think this segment right here is really giving us a lot of insight into what this book is really trying to show us. Comments and questions? Caleb? If Satan had to ask permission to test Job, then it proves that um, God's more powerful than Satan. Precisely. In verse 11, Satan wants God to put forth his hand and touch all he has and, and get rid of it. But instead of doing that directly, so to speak, God allows Satan to do it. Is there a particular reason? I, I don't know. I can give you what looks to me like a good reason. Only God totally knows his reasons, of course. But I think by turning this over to Satan, it sets up a fairer test. Satan is doing everything he can do to make this happen in such a way that Job will curse God. If God had done it himself, Satan might say, well, yeah, but you were trying to engineer it in such a way. Well, this is Satan engineering it. He can do it however he wants to, whenever he wants to, with whatever means he wants to. So I think this, it's like, um, you know, if you are the researcher that's trying to publish this results, you probably need somebody who's totally disinterested, you know, giving you the results and, you know, replicating the test and so forth. If you're the one in control of all that, it's a little suspicious. You might have doctored things up. So I think this really will, will make the point even stronger. God's not even the one who does it. Gives him permission. But Satan does it just how Satan thinks is best to try to lead to the goal of Satan cursing God. Good question. Other thoughts? Let me, let me point this out. Our best opportunity to glorify God is when we're suffering. What if the story of Job was the first five verses? Job's a great guy, and God blesses him. End of story. If that had been the story of Job, how much impact would that story have had on you? Well, when that doesn't happen to me, then it would be like, well, it's a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or I, or I might be saying, well, apparently I'm not doing, I'm not putting the right coins into the vending machine to get these blessings. I must not be righteous. And so this is just, it's a whole bunch of hooey. And That's true. I'm just thinking it kind of only be a blip on the radar. You'd hardly notice the story. Okay, there's another guy. He does good and God bless him. Okay. I mean, the, it's because of, of all that Job goes through that this story has such enormous impact on us and really helps in glorifying God. 
So remember that when you're going through hard stuff, it may be this is your best uh, opportunity to really bring glory and honor to God. Other things through verse 12. All right, how about uh, 13 to 22? Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. How far? To the end of the chapter. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Sure doesn't take Satan long, does it? Wow. This is quite a day. Man. I mean, just put yourself in Job's place. I mean, he's really in shock of one messenger's report when he gets stunned by the next. I mean, he has no time to adjust to some news before he gets more news and more news and more news. It's just, this is, this is like, this is coming at the worst possible way it could ever come. So first a messenger comes to Job and, and tells him what? The Sabians got your oxen and killed your servants. Yeah, donkey. your oxen and donkeys and your servants. I'm the only one left. Second servant comes and says what? Fire fell from heaven, consumed 7,000 sheep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the servants, and I'm the only one left. Then the third messenger comes and says what? Chaldeans took the camels. And the servants, and I'm the only one left. And then? There was a tornado. Yeah. And who did it take? children that were all there for that birthday party they're all gone now did you see the agent that was used each time the first instrument was the Sabians then the fire from heaven then the Chaldeans then the do you see an alternation there the tragedy comes from man from nature from God from man from God uh, but one right after the other, you know, I mean, it's like, you, you know, I think of Job as being like a punching bag, and God hits him, and man hits him, and God hits him, and man hits him. You actually, that's backwards, man, and then God, man, and then God. But he's like, whoa, I mean, this is just a lot to deal with, relentless, high intensity, no chance to brace himself. The accumulation of a lifetime was stripped away from him in one day, and he learns about it in one hour. 
who well, who survives all this? Four servants. Four servants, and Satan cruelly spares them so they can be the deliverer of the bad news. You know, there's a lot of help they were. Now, what day was this? When the sons and daughters were drinking, eating, and drinking. And therefore, it's the same day that. Birthdays? Yes, and the same day that? The day before he did the sacrifice. No, he did it on that day, right? Well, when they completed. Yeah. So I don't know if that. Because I don't know what that's saying. I was interpreting that as the very day he offered the sacrifice, but perhaps not. At any rate, it's the day they're all together, it's this happy family occasion. And, and look at this. And uh, put yourself in that place. I mean, you don't have as much as Job had, probably. You know, but... Uh, do what? I said what? Yeah. At least not as much livestock. <laughs> and not as many children. You'd have the three daughters. <laughs> yeah. He's missing well, seven sons. Halfway there. Yeah. Had all the daughters. I mean, the Dunains have eight sons and three daughters, so... They overdid it. But. <laughs> but, okay, so, I mean, if this was you, and this is, this is the afternoon of the news, wow, this would just be overwhelming. But look at Job. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Job is broken, but he worships God and in that process, he defeats Satan. God's blessings are not a prerequisite for Job's devotion. First thing he does is he falls down and worship God, worships God. And then look what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. What do you see in what he says? He never regarded all that stuff as his own anyway. Absolutely. Why is this so bitter? Because he had been so blessed. Do you see that? You know, it's so much better to see this loss in the light of the blessings God had given him. What if God hadn't given him any sheep or donkeys or camels or children? This is only a loss because God had blessed him. If you look at it that way, it's a totally different perspective. We're like, oh, no, 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 this is horrible. This is the worst. How could God take that away from me? Ding, ding, ding. Who gave it to you? You know, most of us, I think, in our more rational moments, would like to have these blessings even if we can't have them forever. You know, God had been gracious. God had taken that back. And so the bitterness of the loss really just is a measurement of how precious God's blessings were. Isn't that an awesome way to look at that? And wouldn't that help us so much if we just looked at it that way? This, you know, however much this hurts, it just shows you how much God has blessed me. 
There's something else that impresses me about what Job says in verse 21. What else impresses you? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, yes, and which is actually from the same root as curse. Uh, there's a play on this blessed curse business. Uh, but this just puts the icing on the cake of Satan being defeated. You know, blessed be the name of the Lord. Does he only serve God for his blessings? I think about this. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now the Lord didn't take away. Who took away? Well, the Sabaeans took away. And the fire from heaven took away. And the Chaldeans took away. And the wind took away. It wasn't God that took away. See how we would think? We would look at the instruments. We would look at the secondary causes, and we would never say God did it. We would say, well, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the fire, etc. Was Job right? Yes. Had God taken away? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think so. We misunderstand the book, in my judgment, when people say, oh, Job was wrong when he said God took him away. Satan took him away. If we only Some people think the key to the book is just realizing, oh, it was Satan and not God. <laughs> well, <laughs> that doesn't help a whole lot when you realize Satan couldn't have done it if God didn't let him. <laughs> so it's kind of a technicality. I mean, do you really think that when God said that, he thought Satan wasn't going to do anything? <laughs> I mean, you know. So God could have intervened and, and did not choose to. So I think it's fair to say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's, it's a remarkable attitude. Comments and thoughts on all that. The uh, naked I shall return there. Um, I mean, he's not literally saying he's going to return to his mother's womb, but how is that? Well, you just say I didn't bring anything into the world. I'm not taking anything out of it. <laughs> I didn't know if there was any other deep meaning to it. I, I don't think so. I think he just didn't come. He'd come out of the womb with nothing. He's going back with nothing. So what's his net loss? Nothing. He's zeroed out. I mean, really, he's four messengers ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and a wife, which in this case was a dubious uh, blessing, but... Now, I would say, by the way, verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. I don't think you could say that at the end of the book. And clearly not, because Job confesses his sins, and God challenges him. But at this point, he has not sinned in this. So blaming God is obviously different than saying that God did it. <laughs> yes. 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 Blaming would be to... Um, you know, say God did wrong in this. You know, uh, you wouldn't normally say, you know, I, I, I blame you for all the wonderful things I'm getting. You know, you don't use the word blame for that. You know, if it's a blessing, you don't blame. So, he doesn't blame God. He, he, he recognizes the hand of God. 
but he doesn't ascribe fault to God in that. Other thoughts? Well, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Okay. Sons of God have come back before the Lord. And a similar discussion. Satan's there. The Lord says, Where have you come from? And the Lord says, You know, have you considered my servant Job now? I mean, you know, Job was a great honor to God before, but whoa, it's so different now. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. You know, think about how impressive and impactful Job's example is now with all that he's suffered and I mean, you can just see God beaming with pride over Job. Satan, here's one that got away. You know, you don't have him. You know, you just think about him. And uh, think about uh, think about what God says about Himself in verse three. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause, God says. You incited me to ruin him without cause. God does take full responsibility for jo what Job <laughs> is suffering. You know, when, when Job will later say, God is causing me to suffer without cause, he's right. It's exactly what God said. So don't forget this passage. I think that's helpful to us in, in the book. You know, so the key to the book is not to recognize this is Satan's fault. That is not the key to the book. But what's Satan's answer back? Well, I said before that it was because of all the stuff he blessed him with, but really it's because of his health. <laughs> yeah. So I was off. I was mistaken. I thought it was the blessings, but it's his and health. And he's willing to give all that stuff up because he knows that his life is more precious than their lives. and. It's just a bunch of camels and servants and one of the kids. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, Satan says the Job service is just the necessary fee for self-insurance. You know, that's all, I mean, you, know, you didn't kill him. You didn't attack his health. I mean, a man will give everything just to have health. He's almost saying that, you know, Job's serving God because he's afraid of what God would do for him if he didn't, do to him if he didn't. You know, so, I mean, he, he's still alive. He's still has got his health. You know, if you touch his bone and his flesh, he'll curse you to his face. You know, I mean, that's all it would take. You take away this protective barrier. I mean, he's really saying almost to God, 
you know, you set up too many restrictions to have a true test. You know, we can't we can't do this without you know hurting his health. And so the Lord says to Satan, "Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life." Now, one thing that's cool in this is that the extent of what Satan can do is limited by God. I mean, both times, God gives the limits and Satan has to do it that way. He cannot exceed what God tells him. So, Satan will never get by with anything beyond what God permits him to do. Comments and questions? So, Satan says that if he touches his skin and it hurts him, then he will sin, and he does end up sinning after this happens. So is Satan right in this instance? I don't think Satan says that he will sin. Satan says that he will curse you to your face. This is not a question, will Job sin? This is a question, will Job turn his back on God? Will he abandon God? Will he quit serving God? Will he quit seeking to, to live the way God wants him to? Yes, all men sin. No one ever said Job wouldn't sin. But will he quit serving God if God's not keeping him healthy? I think that's the question. Good question. Other thoughts or questions? God didn't specify anything about the lives of his children, apparently. So... <laughs> Uh, Satan's going to take everything he can get. And probably not the life of his wife, but he knew his wife might be more of a detrimental life than death. I think he spares the wife for the same reason he spared the four servants. I think, uh, you know, he thinks she's, she is going to uh, hurt Job more alive than dead. He could have taken the life of all the servants. I mean, looking at his children and his other servants that were killed then, obviously God allowed that, but in the same way that he didn't allow him to kill Job. Mm-hmm. You know, right. If that's what we're saying about Job, then that has to be the case about the rest of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, Satan's done all he can, Cameron. Was this a common occasion to, for the sons of God to come and present themselves before the Lord? Looks like it to me. Is this the only time we hear that? About the, yes, I think so. Always depends on how you define that. You know, Zechariah 3, you know, might be the closest thing I can think of to something sort of like this. No, Zechariah 3, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He was wearing the, the filthy garments and so forth there. That might be something similar, but I, I, don't, I don't know that we have anything exactly like this. Are there, are there other places where, I'm thinking there are other places where individual angels will go to God to get a charge. Yeah, I mean, what about that time in 1 Kings 22 when God's talking to the angels about who can, you know, deceive Ahab and get him to fall and so forth? All right. Other thoughts? Seven to ten. 
Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay. So, what does Satan do to Job? Boils. Where? Everywhere. Every part of his body. Top of the head and the bottom of the foot. When, when God had given Satan the chance to take away uh, the stuff, what does he take away? All. All of it. Do you see what Satan's doing? He is going to the limit. Now, granted, he spared the, the servants. He spared Mrs. Job. But, but we see why he did that. But, but basically, Satan, you give Satan an inch, and he's right at that inch mark. I mean, he is doing everything God says. He doesn't just say, well, you know, I'll, I'll start out with a little dose and see how it goes. He immediately, as soon as he gets that opportunity, he throws everything he can on Job. You know, at every point. I think that's really, uh, tells you a lot about Satan. <laughs> he hates us. And uh, where does Job go? sits in the ashes. Yeah, I'm assuming the city dump. And, you know, he's just kind of on the fringe of society. He's destitute. He's in terrible shape. And Mrs. Job, what does she suggest? Get it over with. Curse God and die. Why would she say that? She doesn't like seeing him like that. I believe this is out of sympathy and concern. You know, just commit suicide by cursing God. You know, he'll take your life and then you don't have to go through all this. Um, you know, she suffered a lot of these losses together with Job. I mean, they were her kids too. They were, you know, her prosperity too. He's her husband too. And so I think she articulates the other option. Job could have done that. Instead of worshiping God, instead of you know, glorifying God, God, Job should have just cursed God and said, just kill him. So I think she's valuable for us in just seeing what Job could have done and seeing that he really is serving God for nothing. And uh, what does Job say? foolish woman. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he's saying this is really kind of out of character for you. You know, you're not talking like yourself. You don't sound like yourself. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You know, we just get mad when the gourd vines removed, like in Jonah. You know, we're willing, anytime he wants to bless us, that's great. I mean, look at it this way. You know, what do you do when God gives you a raise? That's great. 
What do you do if he cuts it back just a little bit? <gasps> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's terrible. What am I, I can't believe the Lord's abandoned me like this. You know, we are prone to take any little setback and just assume, well, God's turned on us. Now it doesn't do to serve God, you know, all this. We give up on the Lord. We're sure okay with him blessing us, but just a little downturn and we're ready to ditch him. I think that's what Job sees in his wife. He says, look, if we're going to accept the blessings he gives us, we're going to accept the downside. There's going to be times we're going to have adversity as well. I think Job is very wise in that, and I think that's what we need to think. It's amazing how sorry for ourselves we can feel, how down we can feel. Oh, woe is me. You know, I just got a scratch on my new car, you know. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we had died, I mean, we can all indict ourselves. You know, my, my, my internet went out for five minutes. You know, or just whatever. I mean, like all these incredible things and and just just blessings that are unbelievable blessings we have and let the littlest, littlest wrinkle come into them and we're just all upset and angry and maybe even kicking dirt in the face of God. So I, I appreciate Job's perspective on this. You know, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, so Job is different from Adam. You know, Adam listened to his wife's advice. Job does not. And, and I think really shows his character in this. The closest person to him now tells him to do this and he resists. And he had, she had better reasoning behind what she was telling him than, I mean, Adam still had everything. He still had right. all the blessings and, and listened. Yeah, he was eating freely from all the other trees of the garden. And Job's just lost everything and doesn't. Yes, excellent point. I mean, Willie, you just got to admire Job right here. Wow. I mean, because... We know how the story's going to end. It doesn't sound so bad to us, but can you imagine being in that? I mean, what if? You know, I mean, you just think about it. everything you own. It's gone. All your, all your family, gone. And you get some horrible disease. All within a matter of, you know, a few days. Well, how would you feel? Wow, it's hard to imagine. Wow. Job's just a great example. Will a man serve God for nothing? That's exactly what Job's doing right here. Because he's not getting anything out of it, and he doesn't think there's prospects for that. We'll see that in a minute. Other thoughts? One of the things that just occurs to me is that Job is being a real leader and head of his wife here because this is going this is all going on and she says this thing that is out of character or it's angry it's bitter and one of the things that he does is he takes the time to basically instruct her and help her at least try to see you know the 
the more acceptable truth that it's, you know, no, honey, we're not going to go do that. This is even, yes, we're hurting whatever, but that's still not what God wants and, mm-hmm. and kind of just an interesting example, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'll buy that. Other thoughts? 11 to 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuahite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. All right, so there's these three people that decide to come to sympathize with Job and comfort him. I assume they were friends. They've come from a ways. And they want to be there with Job. But what, what happens when they look at him? They don't recognize him and they... Yeah, I've seen some people that you pretty much wanted to weep when you saw them, but, uh, you know, this is, I mean, think about how horrible this is for them. He's disfigured badly. He has nothing. He's sitting in the city dump. I mean, oh, wow. This is just, when they knew him back in the day, everything was thriving. Everything was great. Now look at him. Whoa. So this is really hard for them. And so they cry and they tear their robe and throw dust on their heads and do what? Sit there for a week. And say what? Nothing. What do you think about that? They're not girls. (laughs) Gold star. I've not heard about thought about that one, but you're right, they were. in chapter 38 by his point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Job's a little long anyway. They're guys, so. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Uh, what else would you say about them? That was probably the best thing that they said. Yeah, they do not say anything of value now or later. <laughs> And uh, if they had just stayed silent, their reputation would have stayed intact. You know, it would have been a lot better. I mean, really, sometimes the best way you can show your love is just silent company. And sometimes there's nothing to be said, but the fact that you're there and weeping just shows that you care. I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously there's time to say things, for sure. I mean, not always is it time to say things. Sometimes things are too overwhelming for words. And uh, I think it speaks well of them that they go a whole week and they don't say anything. And they don't say anything, period, until he speaks first. I mean, why do we think we always have something to say to everybody in every circumstance before we've ever even heard it? You know, somebody, we just assume something, we rush up and offer our counsel before we even have a clue. I think it speaks really well of them, that they don't do that. They're going to let Job talk first. Um, You know, 
That way they'll be in a better position to respond in a wise way. I don't really know what Job's thinking or feeling here. What would they say? So for a week, they just all sit on the ground and no one says anything. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> Again, that doesn't that show you something? You know, just how much they care about Job. I mean, wow, what an unpleasant thing to do. Sit there and watch your friends suffer horribly day after day for a week. In the dump with torn robes and yeah. dust on your head. And yeah. It's one thing if you're sitting in a nice house and... You know, or Why did he go to the dump? Well, because it's, it's kind of appropriate. Yeah. Just as the ashes. Yeah. Maybe it was something else. What would the fireplace. ashes be from? <laughs> the town fireplace. <laughs> Sackcloth and ashes, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Do you think the ashes could mean like the ashes of when his sheep were burned? I hadn't thought about that. I don't. So, I mean, here you have it. Job is there, his pain is great. They're, stand, they're there, but they're not sure what to do or say. And so we just got seven days of silence. It really gives you a chance to think about what Job was feeling, how this was for him. You know, what you'd feel if you were hit by all of this. All right, comments or questions on any of this? Do these three friends know each other ahead of time? It looks to me like they have set some kind of an appointment to come together to, to, to come to him. And if they've done that, I assume they do. Do you know where these places are? We know where Teman was. That was in Edom. Eliphaz was the Temanite. I don't know where the Shuhites or the Naamathites are. I guess we don't know where Job is, though. That's great. In the land of us. But we don't know where that is. No, I don't know where that is. That was Oz. This is Oz. Who won that contest, by the way? Below average. Below average? Beat us out by two points. What was yours? The name contest. Oh, the name contest? The, the, why, who won the name? Huh? I think they were all so good. Did Oz Buzz come in second? Oz Buzz not I don't know. Somebody's in the English class. I think it was already blockers. Already right. okay. Oval oh. ready blockers. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we stop here then? Uh, wasn't that great. We're in good. Uh, the turnout wasn't that great. What about?